0: Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know that we've been going through the uh, book of Jonah. Right now we're in chapter 3. I going to tell you very quickly uh, where we're at, what we've been doing. And then I will read the passage that we'll be taking a look at in chapter 3. I'll pray. We'll get to work. In short, the book of Jonah is the story of a prophet that has gone rogue. Instead of obeying God, loving God, serving God, and having his heart in line or in alignment with God and on mission in the same way that God uh, intended him to be, Uh, Jonah ran, and we realized one of the reasons why Jonah ran from God is because the mission, the level of the mission that God had called him to was to basically go be a prophet to the enemies of the people of Israel, and we saw that really over the past several weeks that there's a lot at stake for Jonah to take this this mission. Um, For one, it would mean that Jonah would have to be confronted with the reality that if Jonah's mission is successful, then that would mean that the Ninevites would repent, and that means that God would forgive them. I'm not making that up, because Jonah actually says that exact same thing in chapter 4, where he says, I wasn't afraid of failure, I was afraid of success. That was Jonah's big deal. He was afraid that if he went to his enemies. They would repent, God would, wipe. God would forgive them, God would wipe the slate clean, God would welcome them into the family. In other words, God would bring room additions to the household of Israel, and Jonah did not like that. The other thing is kind of speculation, but uh, Jonah also had a lot to lose, because if Jonah was, quote unquote, successful on his mission, that means that the enemies of the people of Israel would be brought into sort of relationship with God's people. And that would mean that Jonah basically serviced the enemies. That doesn't go over too well. In other words, it would be almost be like being a Benedict Arnold. It would be like being a traitor, coming back into your home country. In other words, all the reputation, all the success, all the good honor that Jonah would have had, accumulated to his name, would have been completely washed and lost because he was successful in his missionary endeavor And preaching the gospel and preaching the message to these enemies of God's people. So, Jonah had a lot to lose. And Jonah determined that it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth uh, preaching or living out, obeying what God had called him to do. It would have been, it would be better for him to run and flee. And ultimately, God got his way. Because chapter 1 tells us, God created a storm. The storm brought Jonah into the place where ultimately, then God secondly brought about a whale. The whale or the fish, great fish brought Jonah back to the place where Jonah now was going to go on, be a part of this missionary endeavor that God had called him to do. Even though Jonah capitulated and determined to do what God called him to do, I don't think Jonah had done so with the most eager heart. In other words, I think Jonah was probably just doing the bare minimum. It seems to be the case that Jonah was basically kind of like, all right, whatever, I'll go, I'll do it, I'll tap out, because there's no other alternative. The only other alternative... Are storms, tempests, or you know, uh, the gastrointestinal region of fish? I'd rather not do that. I'll just do what God tell me to, told me to do. But was Jonah excited about it? Was Jonah eager now to see his enemies become his brothers? No, not at all. Jonah just did what he did because he didn't want to be judged. He did what he did because he didn't want to bring about upon himself any further inconveniences of God's judgment. So, Jonah, this sort of rogue prophet, ends up doing what God tells him to do, even though uh, with no eagerness. So we see that Jonah, chapter 3, comes to the city of Nineveh. He preaches in the Hebrew, which basically amounts to a uh, five-word sermon. Very, very short sermon. Um, Maybe in our English Bibles, it might come out to around between seven to eight words. But at the end of the day, it basically, for the most part, was 40 days, God's going to kill you. That was like the end of the sermon, all right? Close my Bible, I'm going home. No altar call, there was like no, you know, song afterwards, no like time to communion, no confession. It was just like, later, I'm out of here. I did what you wanted me to do, God. So Jonah left, and he waited to determine to watch uh, Nineveh basically self-destruct and God's judgment come upon it. Instead, what ends up happening is they heard that word, and it was just the right hammer blow that hit just in that right occasion, right location, that caused a fracture through the entire rock. The whole thing broke open, and the entire city of 120,000 or so repented and turned to God. In a lot of ways, the story of Jonah basically is one of the greatest case studies of repentance in the entire Bible. Uh, it's, it's unprecedented, really, in biblical literature. And so what I want to do this morning is, because it is a story, in a lot of ways also a case study, a really about the subject or the theme of repentance, I want to really try to wrap our minds as best as we can and hopefully our hearts around what repentance is and begin to understand it, to try to unpack it, to really understand what it looks like from a biblical perspective. Because in a lot of ways, uh, we might talk about you know eternal life and talk about God's love, but a lot of times I don't know if we talk a lot about repentance, the word repentance. It's definitely a word that in our culture... Um, we don't think too much about it. In fact, if we have to think about repentance, we typically think of repentance as basically being uh, given over to weak people. Weak people who don't have any more strength uh, because they're so weak, uh, they just simply uh, tap out and they repent. But in reality, uh, repentance is far more than that, and I hope to try to unpack that and understand this, kind of wrap our minds around this, so we can understand really what has happened here in Nineveh. So I want to pick it up at verse... Five, and then we'll read down to the end of the chapter, which is on verse 10. So, let's read. Verse 5, it says this, after Jonah had preached his message in verse 5, it says, And the people of Nineveh, they believed God, and they called for a fast. They put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. And he removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in ashes. And then he issued a proclamation, and he published throughout all of Nineveh. By the decree of the king And his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call on the mighty name of God. And let everyone turn from the evil way of his own violence that is in his own hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from this fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented From the disaster that he had said that he would do to them. And he did do it. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help. We pray, Father, that you just open our eyes, open our hearts, open our understanding. That we would see and receive and understand, comprehend what repentance is. God, that we would demonstrate works of repentance. That we would live it out. So God, help us, we pray right now. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God, enable us to do this. God, we realize, like Jonah, we can be people that do all the right things, but we do them for the wrong reasons. We do them with a the wrong heart. In other words, we're still really not free. Even though we look religious, even though we say all the right things, we're still not free. And God, we know that the aim of the gospel in giving, you, giving us yourself is to give us freedom. So God, help us pray that you'd open our eyes to see what you've done for us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. I want to basically ask a few questions here this morning and hopefully begin to answer them consecutively. The first of which is I want to really kind of ask the question, why do we need repentance? And I want to, first of all, just kind of on a theoretical level, understand a little bit, why do we need repentance? Because the Bible's going to talk about repentance and we're going to discuss it this morning. I want to first jump into understanding why do we need it. The second thing we'll take a look at really is what's the nature of repentance? Uh, What does it really look like? And then finally, how do we cultivate repentance? Repentance, or how do we nurture repentance in our own lives? So, first thing is, why do we need repentance? Um, What's this all about? Um, I want to begin, sort of, to jump in by way of at least sort of giving us kind of a definition that we can uh, work from. Uh, One of my favorite uh, theologians is a guy by the name of J.I. Packer. He has a great way of describing it. Um, I'll use the definition that he gave. Um, I think it's a great one. He says this: Repentance means turning as far from as much as you know of your sin to give as much of, of. Give as much as you know of yourself to as much as, as you know of your God. In other words, as much as you are aware of your own issues, your junk, your stuff, your messed up areas of life, your sin, as much as you are made aware of those areas within as much as you know of yourself, and to give that to as much as we know of God. That's, I think, a great way of defining what repentance is. But I also really want to kind of broaden this out a little bit and go beyond just sort of a religious meaning and religious understanding of what repentance is. Because in reality, we can take the same thing, and I go so far as to say that the number one reason why um, we do have the problems in our culture, the reason why, why we have the problems we have in our culture, that we do, um, yes, it's sin, but sin that basically doesn't get repented of. In other words, we have cultural ills civic ills, social ills, social breakdown, social dysfunctions because, yes, there's sin, but it's sin that doesn't get covered, sin that doesn't get repented of, sin that doesn't uh, ask for forgiveness. So think about it this way. You can actually take what he says right here and use this on just simply a horizontal level in relationships that you have. So for example, if you're married and you have offended your spouse, as much as you know of how you've offended your spouse, you can go to them And apologize to them for that. I'm sorry for the way that I spoke to you. My tone of voice was not kind. And I'm sorry for that. That's a way that leads to repentance. So it also works on just simply a civil or social type of a way. So I want to begin to kind of try to understand this. First of all, beginning just on a horizontal level of repentance. Meaning, I'm strictly speaking here in terms of a non-religious, strictly social way by which repentance has to function within culture and if it doesn't function in culture culture breaks down implodes, explodes breaks down upon itself and does not function, does not work. Okay, I'll give you an example of that. Probably one of the chief examples on a national level is that basically I was doing some research on this and I came across a headline back, basically back in 1989 from uh, within the LA Times and some of us May or may not be super familiar with what apartheid is. Uh, in short, uh, it was South Africa. Lots of people were basically, the, the whites were basically segregating, separating, uh, creating sort of a system in which others were set apart. That's where you get the word apartheid. tied from other people. So blacks were being separated from whites, and it was just horrific. But what they began to discover is that there was all sorts of evils that were being done while this was happening. So what you had in this article is that sort of the confession that some of the police force were actually killing. They were actually taking people. They were just coming up missing. So in other words, you had missing persons reports going on all the time. And what was actually happening, later confessed, was that these quote-unquote missing people were actually being slaughtered in large numbers, actually burned to ashes, and then their ashes were being dumped into rivers, streams, lakes, ocean, Just to get rid of the evidence. And this is what was coming out um, post-apartheid. And it was in the context of this actual particular article. So the article starts off by basically saying the people of apartheid must come to repentance. It's not a Christian article. This is the LA Times. Uh, This is not a Christian circumstance. This is just simply a purely social perspective that apart from repentance, uh, South Africa cannot, will not be able to be somehow... Functioning. Functionable. And so as the article basically finishes, it goes down to basically after all this horrible stuff has been kind of confessed, it finishes the last uh, paragraph of the entire uh, uh, article says this, as leaders of the apartheid state, they clerk, uh, must face up to the truth about these death squads, he and his people still must learn the spiritually cleansing effects of remorse, confession, and repentance. They, have, they haven't yet come close. It's not a Christian article. It's basically just simply saying repentance. Unless repentance happens. Unless someone comes clean and acknowledges and recognizes the, the ills, the evils, the wickedness that has been done to other people. Uh, case is still open. I mean, it doesn't mean that people can't forgive on the other end. There's two parts to this. Reconciliation. There's forgiveness and there's repentance. It doesn't mean that people cannot forgive. But right now we're talking about repentance. And what this article is basically saying is that uh, repentance needs to happen from the governmental level to basically come clean, confess the evils that they had done for there to be a uh, a restoration uh, and to bring about a healing process to South Africa. I'll take this on a personal level. That was on a national level. I'll personalize this. How many of you have had something happen that was of great traumatic circumstances in your life something that was done against you, some form of offense that was done against you, perhaps maybe by a father, a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a loved one, someone you knew, a boss, a pastor, someone in your life, someone that you were close with, and they did something so painful, so hurtful, so debilitating, so destructive, that the one thing that you'd want more than anything that you were never given was just for them to say, I talking to a guy a few weeks ago, he was molested as a child. And it devastated his life. And he was just recently reconfronted with the reality of it. And I was kind of counseling with him, talking with him through this, and just trying to understand a little bit about it. The reality is, is he's completely forgiveness. The, the offender and those that have been involved in this, completely forgive them. He's free. In other words, Jesus has set him free. It doesn't mean that he's always free. It doesn't mean that he has moments where he kind of laughs his back and has to remind himself of the gospel again and move himself out of that again. But he, for the most part, is totally free. Jesus set him free. But I was asking, like, what is the most painful part because a circumstance happened recent that kind of brought everything back to the surface again? I says, what's the most painful part about this entire thing? He says, the most painful part is my people that I would expect... To acknowledge and affirm what I'd gone through, deny it. This is what, what would make you feel better? Like, what if they would just acknowledge that they did something wrong? That's repentance. We need repentance. Let me, let me put it this way repentance, if I can put it in these words. Repentance on a purely social level as well as a religious level we'll talk about in a second. Repentance really is the door that we pass through uh, which to restore broken relationships. That's both true uh, socially and that's both true religiously. Spiritually if you want to look at it in terms of God. Horizontally, horizontally as well as vertically. Because you know this deep down in your heart any of you that have ever been hurt or wounded or offended, if you just had that person sit down with you, look you in the eyes with nothing between you, not Skype, not text, look you in the eyes and say, I'm sorry. Sorry I hurt you. Would that not bring some level of healing? Repentance. We need it. Socially, to live That's how we function. But, that same idea of repentance also gets applied via the gospel in terms of a vertical level with God. Because what the Bible's going to say is that we have been defenders before God. We have basically sinned against God. And really, sin, if I were to break it down, to kind of put it this way, sin really at the heart of it, the center of it, is that we make ourselves out to be infinite and ultimate. In other words, someone once described it this way, uh, a guy by the name of Cornelius Plantinga basically described that sin is the... What's the word I'm looking for? Oh my gosh. What's, it's the vandalism of Shalom. There we go. Vandalism, was the word I'm looking for. It's the vandalism of Shalom. It's coming to Shalom, missing a piece, and then spray painting on it. Vandalizing it, destroying it, destroying it bringing about its own destruction. Another way to describe sin is it's basically trying to emancipate ourselves from the image of God. To remove God over us. In other words, we want to be the captain of our own ship. We want to be the ones that rule and lead and govern and take care of and manage our own lives. And whenever somebody else begins to come in upon us or into our zone, we feel immediately threatened so we shove them out, push them out. And what happens with sin is that we begin to realize we don't have the capacity to govern our lives. See, here's the funny thing is, as youth, when we're young, it's easier to think, when, especially when we're younger, how much power and control we have to exert over our world and be in control of our lives. But what happens is we get a little bit older, maybe get married, and begin to realize you cannot control the emotions of your spouse. If your spouse falls in love with somebody else, what do you do? How do you get their affections back to be focused on you? You get diagnosed with some sort of incurable disease. You begin to realize you just don't have control of your life the way that you thought you did. And the reality is, is that we have, Bible describes us, have sought to emancipate ourselves from God's image. We have sought to vandalize, break down, destroy, remove God's peace from our lives and bring into our own peace. That is another way of basically saying life is really about me. It's the ultimate self-centeredness of our lives. And that's really why the world is in such a diabolical state that it's in. Because you got 7 billion people who think they're God. And every once in a while, just every once in a while, we kind of get into each other's zones a little bit and we offend each other. And Some people go to extremes of murder. Some people go to extremes of just simply blogging nasty things about each other. Some people go to extremes of just simply unfriending somebody that they don't like on Facebook. Sometimes we go to extremes of just giving people dirty glances or dirty looks. The point of the matter is is that when our domain is encroached upon or threatened, we freak out. And the reason why sin is so bad is we basically try to emancipate ourselves from God. And so therefore we need to be brought back into right relationship with God. And this is why Jesus, now on a horizontal level, says we need to repent. This is you know that Jesus' very first words in the very first sermon he ever preached was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand? You know that the last sermon that basically Jesus preached to his disciples before he went up into heaven was that he told his disciples go into all the world and to preach... The kingdom of God teaching people to repent and be baptized. Basically what Jesus was saying is that what we need to do is we need to turn away from the false notions, false ideas, false opinions, false theologies that we have developed over self-preservation. Meaning, because the reason why we have bad, faulty views of God is because sin has shaped, it's marred, it's broken, it's vandalized our ability to perceive him rightly. And so what Jesus says, repent from that. Change your mind. Change the course. Change the direction of your life. And then begin to follow the kingdom of God. That's a good kingdom. It's liberating. It's a freeing kingdom. It gives life, not gives oppression. So that to some degree is why we need repentance. Repentance is the door that we pass through to which restores all other relationships. That's both horizontal, social, Personal as well as vertical with regard to God. I want to jump now into the second question, which is, what is the nature of repentance? So I want to begin to take a look at this kind of from the angle of the text. And I want to jump in to try to understand a little bit the nature of the repentance of the Ninevites. Because, again, like I said, this is the case study. This is what we're looking at. This is the text that we're trying to draw from. So I want to understand a little bit about the nature of repentance of the Ninevites that we had just read. So picking up in around verse 7, Jonah preached this message, maybe even at verse 6, uh, we see that the word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and with ashes. Now, in a lot of ways, this is absolutely unprecedented. Because kings did not just simply give up their thrones easily. Right? Um, we, for example, we don't just simply give up our thrones easily, do we? I mean, if you're in a place of high honor, high greatness, high power, would you just walk away from that quickly? No, we... It's, That's why we oftentimes fight the way that we do. That's why we sometimes can become snappy the way that we do with other people. is because we don't want to lose ground. We hold on to our ground, hold on to our thrones, hold on to our crowns as much as we can. But what we see here in the king, the king basically takes off of his crown, his crown that he had on, lays it down, takes off his robe. Now, uh, a kingly robe, a majestic robe, basically was the king's identity. It was the clothing that identified him. You guys know this. Oftentimes when we buy clothing, we're not just simply buying stuff to cover up our nakedness. We're buying stuff to create an identity. You guys know that. It's why you buy clothes that you buy. It's why you buy the clothes where you buy them. It's why you don't have any problems spending a lot of money sometimes, or a little amount of money. Because we are really actually trying to buy an identity. And so what happens is this king actually takes off his identity. Takes off his clothes his robe, lays them down, gets off of his throne, goes and finds a, I don't a pile of dirt or dust or ashes and sits in it, puts on sackcloth, which is basically really, really highly uncomfortable clothing. It was a way of basically bringing upon his body some sense of abasement or pain as a reminder to the fact that uh, as this uncomfortableness of the clothing to him Uh, He has been sort of a source of irritation to God. And therefore, he wants to rid himself, strip himself of all of these things in order to be made right with God. In other words, it's a sign of uh, repentance, of turning from these things. Verse 7 says, Then he issued a proclamation, and he published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor flock nor taste anything, uh, nor feed them drink or water. So what we're going to see here, basically he gives three prohibitions. He says, from the greatest to the least, which is... From the nobles, the people that had money, the people that were of renown, This would have been, you know, equivalent to our modern-day rock stars. This would have been, you know, people that worked in Fortune 500 companies. This would have been people that, you know, had a name for themselves. They got a big blog and big following on YouTube channel. Like everybody knows them. Everybody knows who they are. From the greatest of them to the least of them, meaning just the homeless dude that nobody ever pays attention to, standing out right in front of uh, food for less. The greatest to the least of these, he says, I issue a decree to all of these people and everybody in between, even the animals which is kind of an interesting thing, like, what's up with the animals? Um, a lot of commentators don't know exactly what that means, but one commentator basically described it as they actually uh, brought pain upon their animals. kind of like a, a way of bringing, I, I mean, today would definitely um, be viewed as probably like, you know, animal cruelty. But back then they were like desperate. We've got to figure out a way to, you know, make God happy. And so there were these three prohibitions. Don't taste, don't feed, don't drink, and then three positive injunctions. He says, uh, to be covered. Be covered with sackcloth. Uh, like I said, already alluded to the very highly uncomfortable clothing. And they says to call upon God. Which this is interesting. Uh, the actual Hebrew word that's used here for God is the word uh, Elohim. Um, most Hebrew scholars actually see a parallel between chapter 3 and chapter 1. Chapter 1, if you remember, when uh, Jonah uh, went down to this great ship. And inside this great ship, there's this great storm that was uh, taking down this great ship. And then the captain of the ship comes to Jonah and says... Uh, You know, who are you? Where did you come from? You know, why don't you pray to your God because uh, we're dying. We need some help, so maybe we need as many prayers as we can get. Jonah's like, I'm a Hebrew. I worship God. But the word that he uses there for God is the name Jehovah or Yahweh. And what basically Jonah was saying there in chapter 1, is like, I want to tell you the name of my God. This was the covenantal name of God. Jehovah is our God. Jehovah is our Savior, our salvation. That's his name, his covenantal name. Now, why does Jonah not describe or say the name to this Ninevite king? My guess, again, this is purely conjecture, so don't let this be sort of the final end-all word on this, but my thought, my guess, in fact, another commentator basically states it this way, Hebrew commentator described it like this way. Jonah was so d- disliking of the Ninevites, he did not want them to even know the covenantal name of God. So he's just like... God, like that powerful being in the sky. He's going to come down upon you in 40 days and crush you. But that's all they needed. They didn't need to know the full covenantal name of God. They just needed to know that this God meant business. And what little revelation they had of God. They prayed to him. This to me tells me something a little bit. That God is eager for us to know him. He brings revelation to us. But what little revelation we have as we respond to that, as we turn to that, as we allow that to change us, to turn us into people that repent and turn from our ways to this God, God receives. And that's what we see with this. So they call upon God Elohim, not the covenantal name Jehovah, but Elohim. And he says, turn from injustice. Now, um, the idea that's basically conveyed here is that justice, which would be the opposite of injustice, is that injustice, we oftentimes identify as people that take advantage of other people. And in reality, in ancient cultures, just like in modern cultures, uh, you have people that are the high rollers. They're the ones that have power. They're the power brokers. Um, But there's also everybody in between. We call them the middle class and the lower class. And all have this sort of self-preservation. Remember I said the root problem being is that we all think that we are our own Gods who are entitled to our own uh, thrones, our own power, uh, powerful kingdoms, and so we oftentimes will stop at nothing to get what we want. It's one of the reasons why we oftentimes do injustice. Meaning, we will take advantage of the weak. So, for example, if there was a widow, she had a lot of money, big inheritance. If you went to go help out that widow, not because you love the widow, not because you wanted to help her, but because you wanted to cut from her money, then that is exploitation. That is not. Justice, that's injustice. You're taking advantage of her. And if you were to be found out, people would hate on you. People don't like people like that. If you work in a place where you uh, have perversions and you take advantage of weak and vulnerable people, for example, like kids, uh, that is injustice. What the king is saying here is he's issuing this proclamation saying, what we need to do is we need to undo what we've done. We need to basically go about and do justice to undo the injustice. In other words, Things that maybe that have been stolen, things that were taken unjustly, give them back. Areas in which people have been taken advantage of, or areas in which people have been oppressed, stop oppressing them. This is the idea that basically what Jesus is, or what, what the king is saying here, gets carried over into the New Testament. Let me ask you this, did Jesus do justice? All the time. Every time, we think of justice oftentimes as being, you know, rendering a judgment. It is to some degree entering judgment. It does involve that, but really justice basically means making right that which is wrong, making straight that which has become crooked by way of sin, by way of oppression, by way of brokenness. And what we see with Jesus is he basically makes straight those areas that were broken, sometimes physically. When someone's body has been physically broken, physically damaged, some sort of evil has been done to them, that has taken something from them, Jesus gives it back. Jesus is doing justice. He's doing righteousness. In fact, the word for justice and righteousness are really almost the exact same word. It's, uh, it's the idea of basically making right that which is wrong. I'll give you an example of justice that I saw not too many years ago. I was talking with a guy, and he had basically taken the virginity of a young gal. And after chatting with him a little bit, he basically had a conviction upon his heart to call this girl up to apologize to her. And to say, I'm sorry that I took your virginity. We were going out. I shouldn't have done that. I don't know what type of impact or what type of effect it had upon you. But as he was sharing with me the story, he basically said, when I picked up the phone and I called her, I was shaking. I finally got up the courage to call her. She picked up the phone. She answered. She, you know, uh, didn't want to hear from me, but... I told her what I called for. I says, I'm a a Christian. God has been convicting me to try to undo those areas that I had broken. And I had stolen something from you. I took something from you. I'm sorry for that. He says, there was dead silence on the other side. He said, all of a sudden, she started just crying, sobbing. And then she was finally able to say, I've never had anybody apologize for something like that. She said, you don't even know how healing that is to me. To hear you say that to me. That's justice. Making straight those areas that we've broken. Giving back those things that we've stolen. Undoing that which our sinful hands have done. This is what the king was doing. And it's interesting because at the end of the passage, verse 10, it says this, and when God saw what they did. In other words, God... The the text doesn't say when God heard their prayers. It says that when God saw what they did, there was something visible that they did that demonstrated. See, this is why I said earlier that repentance is not just simply praying a prayer. Look, let me put it this way. I I, got to call this for what it is. In a lot of ways, in American cultural Christianity, Christianity in a lot of degrees has sort of been uh, broken down. Into sort of this idea that all we have to do, all that God really demands of us or accepts as a, uh, d- d- desires of us, is for us to pray a prayer and to basically ask him into our heart. In other words, we, all we really have to do is to make a decision to follow Jesus. And once we pray that prayer make a decision to follow Jesus, then everything's good, right? Let me put it this way. The Bible uses the word Christian three times. The Bible uses the word disciple 269 times. Three times, Christian. 269 times, disciple. A disciple is one who maybe the best way we can look at it in today's culture is an apprentice. He is an apprentice. He doesn't just know cognitively what his master knows, but he lives the way his master lives. In other words... What it means to be a disciple is not to just simply pray a prayer or to make a decision to follow Jesus. It's to become and be transformed by our master because of his greatness. To be transformed by his power in us and through us. And if Jesus did justice, did justly, then what should his disciples do? Justice, justly. This is why Paul would say in Ephesians, those of you that used to lie, don't just stop lying. In other words, don't just cut off the bad. Paul says, start speaking the truth to one another. Paul says, look, those of you that used to steal for a living, you know, you used to rob your neighbor, steal from other people, Paul says, well, just stop stealing. I mean, it's good. Giving up a bad habit it's good. But rather than just not stealing, how about you use the resources you have to give away? Give your money away. Be generous with what you have. What Paul is really saying is totally in alignment with the old testament concept of doing justice do justly which is what jesus did and this is what we see that this king does is he gives these prohibitions and then ultimately he gives these injunctions now the reality is oftentimes the way that we deal with stuff in our lives is not this way there's at least six different ways in which we oftentimes deal with the guilt of our own conscience see what we see here in the story of the ninevites when they were preached to, they were made aware, well aware of the fact that God is just and they were unjust, that God is holy and they were unholy, that God is good and they were wicked, and so therefore they repented from those things and turned to God and God forgave them, washed them, demonstrated mercy to them. But for us, oftentimes, we need to be aware of this because, like I said earlier, repentance is not oftentimes in our vocabulary. We don't use it very often. But the reality is when we have guilt, because guilt oftentimes is what leads us to basically those broken uh, ways and responses, the way that we oftentimes deal when we are guilty is one of these six ways, sometimes maybe even a combination of them. First thing is that when we have guilt, we oftentimes will criticize or gossip or compare ourselves. That's what we do. We criticize other people. We look at other people that are less than us. We're like, how... Scampy of them they had 16 girlfriends i only had two i'm not that bad right um or i can't believe that they stole like six million dollars you know i only stole 60 like like we look for people to kind of stack ourselves up accordingly and then compare ourselves as if somehow some way that's going to appease our guilt to make our guilt not feel so bad right you, get, you get, does anybody agree with that like any amens on there No, it's dead silent. I get it. But here's my point. Is that we oftentimes look, in fact, some of us actually, this is like the rule of thumb we use for like friend selection. We're like, I will find friends that are like way worse than me because I feel so messed up. If I can find friends that are like really messed up, then I'll feel better about myself. Right? I I just put it as a rule of thumb. That's probably not a good way to like select friends. But here's the point. It's because oftentimes it's motivated by guilt. We know something's not right in our hearts, in our lives, on a horizontal level and a vertical level with God. In other words, the Bible's term for that is guilt. We feel this guilt. It feels oppressive upon us, and we know that we can't live with it. We've got to do something about it. So one of the things we oftentimes do is we criticize, gossip, or compare ourselves. Second thing we do is we overachieve. Sometimes this is what drives our need to overwork, overextend, overgive. It feels like we have something to prove because we do. Inside, we know that something's not right. Right? So we work really hard. We're like, I gotta prove myself. I gotta prove myself to somebody. I gotta somehow cause people to know that I am a value. Even though internally that's being motivated and driven by a fact that you know, you feel that you are broken. Because of the brokenness, you feel devalued or worthless. We cannot stand the emotion of feeling worthless, right? None of us can. We need to be valuable. We need to feel valued. But the issue is is that because we're broken, we're sinful, the way the Bible describes it, is that we try to find our value in all sorts of other ways. And when we fail, we turn to some of these other means by which to deal with it by criticizing, gossip, by overachieving. A third way is blame shifting. We look for people to cast blame upon. All right, this is like the famous one uh, of of married people, all right? Um, Blame shift. Look for somebody else. to shift it over towards, to blame, to cause uh, us to not feel so bad because the reason why we acted that way, the reason why we yelled, the reason why I raised my voice was simply because if you didn't look at me that way or didn't act towards me that way, I wouldn't have done that. Um, my wife and I kind of have this little joke, which wouldn't make any sense to any of you, but we oftentimes kind of bring it up when, 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 when we do this, and, and, and we do this, all right? We blame shift for like, I wouldn't have, you know, gotten so upset if you had not done that. And we just kind of look at each other like, okay, that's, that's what we're doing again. We are blame shifting. It's not okay. And that's not genuine repentance. Fourthly, we beat ourselves up. And so what we oftentimes do here, if we sort of bring about our own kind of self-breakdown, uh, we're trying to destroy ourselves, break ourselves. One of the reasons why oftentimes uh, people actually cut themselves. They'll cut their flesh, actually cut their flesh as a means of basically saying, I'm guilty, I need to pay Blood needs to be spilt. I've done something wrong, and I've got to feel the pain that I've caused. Sometimes women, sometimes even men, but oftentimes more so, it's a cultural phenomenon with women, that they will starve themselves. They will purge their food as a means of saying, I'm not pretty. I don't look the way that I should look. I'm not as thin as I should look. And it's my fault because I can't control my eating. So therefore, I will starve myself as a means of punishing myself. So what we do oftentimes is beat ourselves up because we feel a sense of guilt. We have something we've got to cover and prove. Fifthly, we define it away. We rationalize it away. Sixthly, we deaden ourselves to it. Oftentimes, we medicate. We figure out other ways to somehow cover it. This could be by way of you know, taking drugs, drinking alcohol, getting drunk. This can be like shopping, like addictive Behavior in terms of shopping. Just any type of way that you can somehow get your mind off of the guilt that you have. But look, at the end of the day, when we find ourselves in these places, we're really not free. We're a slave to that guilt. That's what the Bible describes as being a taskmaster. We are a slave to that guilt. And it's absolutely exhausting to live your life, trying to cover your own shame and guilt. And we do it all the time. But what's the alternative? The alternative is repentance. Uh, The alternative actually is in Psalm 32. Why don't you guys open your Bibles here real quick. Psalm 32, I'll read it. Just two verses I want to read here. Psalm 32 is actually one of the greatest psalms that describe repentance. In fact, there's seven psalms that are oftentimes described as seven penitential psalms, which basically means they're psalms of repentance. And if you think these psalms are like somber and, you know, heavy and weighty and oppressive, they're not. They're actually jubilant and joyful and life-giving, life-generating. Because what happens when people repent, what happens when people stop trying to cover up their own guilt, their own shame, and instead expose it, something absolutely phenomenal happens. Their guilt and shame gets covered. And that's what David discovered in Psalm 32. He says this, verse 1. Blessed is the man, or blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In verse 5 he goes on and says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. So I just want to listen to this real quick. I'm going to start with verse 5. David basically says, I did not cover my sin. Verse 1 says, how happy is the guy whose sin is covered. So what is it, David? Cover your sin or not cover your sin? Here's what David's saying. When I try to cover my sin, I felt constantly broken down, destroyed, crushed, oppressed, depressed. But the moment I stopped and I allowed my nakedness, my shame, to be exposed to you, my God, then you covered me. You covered me. What David is saying is that the one who's the most happiest is the one who stops trying to cover their own shame, their own guilt, and lets God cover it. In the garden, when Adam and Eve, before they sinned, the Bible tells us that I actually walked with God in the cool of the garden, the cool of the day. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds amazing. It's paradise. They were with God. They were with each other. But there's a little verse that actually says, "And they walked with God, and they were naked." And unashamed. There's no shame. Now just the thought of that makes it a little bit queasy and uncomfortable, right? Because most of us, when we think about nakedness, we're like, ah, I don't even like that thought. All right? Because what that means is that when we're naked, that means we cannot cover, we cannot hide. Those little fat rolls that we have. All right? If you're like part Chewbacca, you can't cover or hide the fact that you have a really hairy back. All right, that's why you wear the shirts that you wear, like padded shirt. Like, oh God, it's, just all, it's just nothing but a front to cover up the fact that you're a hairy dude. Like You don't want people to know that. We have areas and parts of our bodies that we're like, ah, I don't like it, it's all disproportionate. Like, like we wear clothes to cover that. Because we don't want it to be seen. We know we're well aware of our imperfections. And what God said of Adam and Eve is that before the fall they were naked, both of them and unashamed. After the sin, after the fall, it says that Adam and Eve both ran, fled from God and ran, fled from each other, and they decided to put on fig leaves to cover themselves before God and to cover themselves for each other. So something happened after the fall where they became poignantly aware of the fact that they were broken. Let me give an example. We talked about AMP earlier, art, music, poetry, right? If you think you're a good musician, right, and you're, you, know, you think you're really good and you're playing your songs and you play next to somebody that's, like, really good. I mean, we're talking, like, professional quality. Will you become self-aware and self-conscious and actually maybe be like, yeah, I'm gonna, I think I'll just put the guitar down because I kind of am not good, right? You will, and the reason why, or let's say you started a brand-new job, all right? and you're not really good on the computer, Uh, for example, all right, I mean, most people are fairly used on a computer, but let's just say you're you're, you're not. And the whole office depends upon people that are really, really good on the computer. And if you're not good on the computer and everybody else around you is really, really good or really, really talented, really, really gifted, and you're not, then you become very self-aware. You become aware of people standing around you, standing over you, watching you, because you don't want to have... Your imperfection or failure or weakness found out because you're not good. So you cover. You cover your computer screen. You cover up your art. You don't let anybody hear the music you make. You don't want to hear anybody see you. You're aware of the fact that you're not perfect. The Bible says that because of our sin, we try to cover our shame. And we live our whole lives... Fabricating, manufacturing, finding, discovering, uncovering fig leaves that we can somehow use to cover up our nakedness, our shame. And we live our lives, and as I said earlier, it's absolutely exhausting. At some point, you will be found out, you will be broken. And what we see in the case of the Ninevites, they turn from their wicked ways. They turn, they acknowledge the fact that God is good, and they're not. They recognize the fact that God is holy, that they were not, and they acknowledge their sin before God, and then God says, I will cover you. Just like David says, I've done something horrifically wrong, and God, I entrust myself to you. So rather than me covering my sin, like I've tried to do, I will unveil myself, uncover my nakedness, because you see it anyways. And I'll let you cover it. And that's why David could say, how absolutely, infinitely happy, joyful is the one whose sin is covered. So here's the final question. How do we cultivate that? Because if you're really honest, what I'm suggesting is to basically say, be completely uncovered before a God who sees, knows, knows everything and is perfect in all of his ways and you know if you've ever gotten married if you're gonna get married there's gonna come a moment where you will be be before your spouse revealing things now that's talking physically i mean you can't hide anything from them those little bad habits you had you can't hide them within the marriage all right those little things that you do that you've tried your whole life to try to avoid like waking up in the morning She will find out that your breath reeks in the morning. All right? It's unavoidable. She will find out that your body is not always clean smelling. She will discover these things. He will discover these things. You cannot hide it forever. And our greatest fear is to be totally found out but not loved. But what if being totally found out, we are totally loved? This is what the gospel offers. So the question is, is, how can I uncover myself and my sinfulness and my brokenness before a God who is perfect and his eyes pierce through all my ways and sees everything without the fear of him mocking me, shaming me, breaking me, poking fun at me, because if, honestly, if you did that in front of anybody, like took off your clothes in front of someone, don't suggest you ever do that, but if you did, you know that people would laugh at you, they would make fun of you, they would point out flaws and characteristic issues about you, and that's why we would run as far as fast away as we could, but imagine doing that with your soul, bearing it all raw before God, how can we do that, and the way that we can do that is because what the Bible basically tells us, it sets out sort of this trajectory, in other words, chapter 3 in the book of Jonah tells us of this king, I said earlier, chapter 1 is sort of this parallel of a king, or of, of a captain. The captain of the ship makes a decision, and the decision that he makes ultimately ends up rescuing and saving the rest of the ship. Uh, chapter 3 is the story of this king. The king makes this decision, and in his decision process, ends up saving his entire kingdom of subjects. And this is a trajectory. If you, In other words, if you were to take it and follow it to its logical end, to where it takes you, where it uh, intends for you to go, it leads you to the New Testament, where you see another captain, ...who makes a decision. And in his decision, rather than... ...throwing over, casting over... ...his crewmates into the storm... ...he goes into the storm... ...completely for us. And another king... ...who rather than... ...wiping out and destroying his subjects... ...this king... does exactly what Philippians chapter 2 tells us... ...and this is what it says... ...that Christ Jesus... ...this king... ...the word Christ can simply mean king... ...King Jesus... He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that's sort of a New Testament idiom of basically describing the cross is the most shameful, humiliating, dehumanizing way of dying that anybody can ever take upon themselves. It's basically a way of saying you are stripped naked, not in front of your spouse, but in front of the entire world. They see everything fault on you, everything about you. Jesus was stripped naked for the world to see. Why? Because you and I who are naked and ashamed so that we can be given clothing. So that we can be robed. How? Because the king took off his robe so that we can be given one. To the degree that you see that this king is not out to destroy you or out to crush you, but out to be crushed for you, out to be destroyed on the cross by carrying and bearing our sin for us so that you who feel the consequences of our sin, of being destroyed, of being crushed, can actually be given freedom in life. To the degree that you see that he actually is for you. Then what Paul basically says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, begins to make sense it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance to the degree that you see that this king laid everything bare for you first this gives you the confidence that you can lay everything bare to him and he won't crush you he won't mock you he won't shame you because he was mocked for you he was shamed for you so that you can be given life he's trustworthy We're going to respond by partaking of communion, heaven in the back, by singing. team will come on up, by worshiping. And I want to invite you to think about areas in your heart, in your life, that maybe God is calling you to turn from, to repent from. Areas where God is saying, look, this thing in your life, the reason why I'm telling you to let go of it is not because I have this powerful Dominion over you. And God has every right to say that. But God says, Look, the reason why I'm asking you to let this go is because it's a malignant tumor that, unless you let it go, it will kill you. It will kill you. It will take over your whole body, your whole life, to where there will be no distinction between the tumor ends and your life ends and begins. That's what cancer does. It takes over your body to where there is no more you. It's just tumor. And God is saying, this is what sin is like. It will take you over to the point where it destroys you. I'm calling you, I'm bidding you, let go of it. Repent, turn from it, turn to me. Lay yourself bare for me. I laid myself bare for you. Trust me, that's what Jesus is saying.